And then the text, uh, the final text for our evening tonight, John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 13 and following. No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So in our brief time together this evening... We are trying to discuss the biblical motif of creation underneath the curse of God. Creation under God's curse. And you'll recognize the selection of readings that uh, we read together, although only three sections of varying portions of scripture all reflect this idea that payment must be dealt for justice to be satisfied, that uh, payment is demanded. In the text, for example, in Numbers, a rather obscure text, Numbers 21, we find that for the Israelites to be healed, for the Israelites to be saved, uh, a serpent must be lifted up for their their vindication, for their salvation, for the poison in their community, the judgment of God to be removed. Now this theme seems obscure, it seems Old Testament-like, until we find that Jesus equates his very mission upon the earth in the terms of the serpent which Moses lifted up in the wilderness. You'll see that there in uh, John chapter 3, verse 14. In the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. It is not only that the Son of Man is lifted up in the way that the serpent is lifted up. It is also that the Son of Man saves his people in the same way that the serpent saved the Israelites long ago. But in order for us to establish that, we'll need to lay the groundwork a little bit more. One of the principles uh, of reading scripture is not reading one verse of scripture in isolation, but reading all of scripture in context of its own argument, its own flow of thought. And in the Gospel of John, a flow of thought is introduced for us very early on in the text, uh, where Jesus Christ is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8, We're told there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about this light. John the Baptist is then uh, uh, examined by the Pharisees. They go to him to find out who he is and what he's about. And after he disappoints them by telling them he's not the Messiah, not the one that they're looking for, The very next day in verse 29 of John chapter 1, he sees Jesus coming down towards him and he points and identifies Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a motif established early in John's gospel that Jesus exists to substitute, to take away the sins which the world owes outstanding to God. That in order for justice to be met, payment must be satisfied. 
And John's gospel lays the, lays the foundation that Jesus, in fact, is that payment. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, lays the foundation that Jesus is the payment. So the witness about Jesus says that Jesus is the payment. The Old Testament anticipates a payment for the justice of God, uh, by example, the snakes in the wilderness. But not only that, Jesus, when discussing himself to Nicodemus and his work on earth, he says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in this way must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it is not only the Old Testament expectation, not only is it John the Baptist's message, but it is also Christ's self-understanding about who he is and what his work is to be. And that then takes us to the establishment of our text tonight, which is to examine and trace this idea of the curse in Scripture, this this curse motif which is found throughout Scripture, and ask the question, in what way, in what capacity, does Jesus relieve us from the curse? The curse is there from the get-go. You can't get more than three chapters into the Bible before you find that creation is under the curse of God because of man's failure to obey God's commands. God curses the ground, God curses the snake, and God curses the work of the hands of man and woman so that they would be in toil and strife all the days of their life. When we consider the problem of evil and suffering and pain and heartache and brokenness and death and decay in this world, the Christian worldview cannot, and in fact no worldview can answer this question apart from Christ, because every other answer to decay, suffering, death, and evil falls short apart from Christ. Some would posit today that our world is not in fact all that wicked, and really the things that we experience that feel wrong and broken and out of whack are really just things we need to get used to. It's how the world has always been. It's how the world will always be. That death is merely a part of life and we ought to embrace it as such. And yet that does not stop you and I from recognizing how hurtful it is when someone we love passes. It does not stop us from recognizing how wrong it feels when our bodies decay and grow old and are corrupt under the curse. It does not actually answer the question of conscience. For example, if, if the world is how it is, neither good nor evil, just it is so, how does that answer the question of morality, of us being able to judge things as right or wrong in the world? It is not as though, it is not as though we live under the curse of sin, uh, and that is God's vindictive vendetta against you and I, because we did not commit any small crime against God. We committed a high treason, a blasphemy against God, because sin isn't just small movements against God's law, small rebellions. Sin has to first dethrone God from his place of rightful law-giving, rightful decrees, rightful governance, and then it puts us in the place of God that we can make our own decrees, our own judgments, our own governments. So when you and I sin, we, we don't do so as a small rebellion. The first step of sinning is to take God off of the throne say we reject your word and your decrees, and then to put ourselves onto the throne, settle down, get comfortable, and then to decree for ourselves and for the world around us, this is in fact how it is. I don't care what God said, this is how it is. Each of us has set ourselves up then against God, and so it is that we carry out sin. This is how sin is carried out. We, we put ourselves in the place of God, judging what is right and wrong. This is the position Adam and Eve put themselves in. They They decide, they want to know for themselves what is good and what is wrong, what is bad and right. They want to judge for themselves, not not leave that up to God. 
So in order for us to sin, we need to take God out of his rightful place and insert ourselves there. This is blasphemy. This is robbing God of worship and authority which is owed to him. And as a result of this, God hands us over to this act of treason. And he says, if we we want to sit in our own thrones and our own authorities, he'll in fact give us over to this. But the problem is, us in the seat of God leads to death, decay, and corruption. Because no human can substitute the place of God and decree rightly what is to happen. Because God is the one who sets up the world. We cannot violate the laws of God. We cannot go against the laws of God any more than we can violate the laws of physics. And that's why sin causes corruption, hurt, and brokenness. Consider, for instance, if I was to go to the top of a second-story building, peer over the edge, see concrete on the ground and people walking, and then I was to say, well, I don't think gravity is real right now. I'm going to jump off the edge. And I land on the ground. I hit the ground. I break my legs. And I say, wow, this is really painful. That really hurt. It hurts me. Maybe I land on someone. It hurts them as well. But what, what, what else was to be expected by my course of actions? I, I put myself against the laws of nature and decided to try to define or try to defy the indefiable. I tried to stand against God who is the one you cannot stand against. He is the immovable one. So we can all affirm the phrase, uh, as Christians, we can all affirm this idea, and in fact, the world would affirm this idea, that you can't stand against the law of nature. And in fact, in some sense, the world even affirms the idea that you can't stand as the center of the universe. How many times have you seen a young child growing up and their mother or father or maybe an aunt or uncle sits them down and says, well, Johnny, you're not the center of the world. The world doesn't revolve around you. I don't care if you're hungry right now, you're going to wait till supper. I don't care if you want to play with that toy, you're not allowed to. I don't care if you want to keep playing video games, you're not allowed to. The world does not revolve around you. The world can affirm that, and it's good advice that the world gives. And yet, here's the question, if the world doesn't revolve around you, that little child, if the world doesn't revolve around me, who, in fact, does the world revolve around? How then do we answer the question? It's called begging the question, right? If the world doesn't revolve around one child, well then, who does the world revolve around? If you are a naturalist, you would say the sun. The sun is what the world revolves around. The world is a star spinning in the galaxy through the cosmos of infinite nothingness. And you are nothing but finite material. And therein is the problem, the problem of evil once again. Because if nothing is meaningless, if nothing is moral then we cannot say things are objectively evil or wrong because, well, the world as we know it, the world as it exists, is not a moral universe. It's not a moral world. So naturalism fails because, uh, just examine your conscience, you know that there are things that are objectively right and objectively wrong. And we, we know those things because God has woven into the fabric of reality. If you are an existentialist, you would say that Uh, actually, you are at the center of your universe. You would say to little Johnny, don't listen to your parents or your aunt or your uncle. You are, in fact, at the center of your universe. But it's not the whole universe. It's just your own small corner of the universe. You're at the center, and they're at the center, and they're at the center, and everyone else is at the center of their own universe. The problem with that is it's a rather lonely place to be at the center of your own universe with everyone else also at the center of theirs. It doesn't answer the question of evil because, well, if you're at the center of your universe, you're in control of your universe. So how can people do wrong against you? And how can you violate their claims of right and wrong if they're also at the center of their own universe doing whatever they please? It does not quite solve the problem. 
because it makes everything relative. In Christianity, we say both simultaneously that God is at the center of the universe and that we, who exist in the universe God created, are at odds with him from the beginning. Sin is a, a product of our rejection of God at the center, and everything else is us spiraling out of control, trying to hold on to violating the, the inviolable God. So what solution exists if, if we're not actually at the center and we're at odds with God and we are constantly so? What solution exists? Well, us under the curse is solved by God becoming a curse for us. This is what the text teaches in John, that Jesus enters into the universe, enters into the world, enters into the cosmos, enters into creation, and into a human body, so that he might redeem his people unto himself. Athanasius says it this way, it is to this end that he takes for himself a body capable of death, that by partaking of the word who is above all, he might then be worthy to die in the stead of all. That Jesus takes upon himself a human body for the sole purpose of redeeming a lost humanity under the curse to himself. But he cannot just wipe the slate clean because God is an infinitely just and infinitely holy God, which is why payment must be dealt. So Jesus doesn't just show up in the clouds and say to humanity, you're forgiven. He has to enter into a human body to be a substitute, a swap for the right shape, right size that people occupy in the galaxy. You can think about it like Indiana Jones when he raids the temple. And he, in order to get the idol off of the booby trap, has to substitute an equally weighted thing in its place or else it'll go off. This is what the God-man substitution is like. For a human being to be substituted out of the throngs of death, a human being must be substituted in its place. This is what Jesus is doing in your and I's stead. But if that's the case, when he substitutes himself, he stays there and, and remains in the bondage and in the trap while we are liberated and, and freed. This is what he's doing on the cross. He's, he's standing in our place, not so that he can also get off free, but so that he can bear the full brunt of what was coming our way. This is what's going on in the wilderness. That in order for the Israelites to be saved, God ordains that a snake, a symbol of the curse which he has sent among them, a poisonous curse, he ordains that a snake be the thing that they look to for hope, for salvation from this curse. And he miraculously makes it so that when the Israelites, after being bitten by the snake, after being poisoned, can look to the bronze serpent lifted up, and at that moment of looking in faith, they can miraculously be healed of the curse which is upon them, that judgment is dissipated by a picture of the judgment which ought to be owed to them. This is what's happening in Christ's crucifixion. When he goes before Pilate, when he goes on trial, when he goes up on the cross, he is being lifted up in the same place that all sinners were to be put in. Not just physically, thousands of people have been crucified throughout history but to endure the cosmic destruction and wrath of God poured out upon him, which is impossible to depict. That he bears that in his body, and he does it in our stead. That he is the sim symbol of the curse of God, and when we look to him as the hope, that the curse that is truly upon us is relieved. This is what the Gospel of John says at the, at the end there in verse 18, chapter 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But notice this, the curse is already upon mankind because whoever does not believe is, is already condemned, is, is already under the curse of God. Just like the Israelites are already under the curse in the wilderness, they need to look to the snake for escape. So it is with humanity that we are already under the curse of God's wrath, but we can look to the Son for escape. This is the salvation that Jesus offers to us. And in his redemption, the curse is broken. The bondage that we were once held in is removed. The decay that we once expect is no longer to be expected. And in his death, he actually totally satisfied the payment that is to be owed. He totally uh, binds sin and takes down death. And as the scriptures tell us, he, in his action of death, obtains the, the keys of both death and Hades so that he is now Lord over them. God, a holy God, cannot tolerate any kind of sin, and he is a just God, so he must have a payment that is to be satisfied. And the scriptures bind together a testimony of expectation and, an ex and a testimony of true historical happenings that don't just tell us that Jesus lived and died at the hands of Roman authorities, but it gives us the theological commentary along the way. So we are not mistaken and thinking that when Jesus lived as a historical figure, he died as a political rebel. We know that he lived as a historical figure. He lived as a messianic figure. He lived and died under Roman occupation. And he did so not at the hands of Pilate, not ultimately at the hands of the Jewish rebels, but he does so at the hands of his own will and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, all pouring out the wrath of God on the cross as we read in John 19, Jesus says, Pilate has no authority to crucify me unless it was given to him from God. That Jesus can actually solve the problem he's in at the moment he's in it, and yet he willingly lays his life down. As he says elsewhere in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me, but I, I lay it down of my own accord. He does so willingly for you and I. Not that he owes us salvation, but if you've been redeemed by Christ, if you, if you know what it is to be freed from the curse, you know that sin doesn't have a sting anymore. The shame and guilt of sin doesn't have the same bite it once did because well, we've been freed from the curse of sin. This is the hope for those who look upon the cross. This is why Christians gather year over year to remember this event because the cross isn't actually bad news for us. Just like the serpent hung up in the wilderness, among the people who are experiencing the curse of that fiery assault, they are not looking to the bronze serpent as a picture of the curse. They're looking to it as a picture of hope. It displays and emblemizes the curse which is among them, and yet it is the hope of their redemption. So they remember it. They recall it as the means of escape which God has provided. So to the cross, while in the first century when it's happening in live events, tells us much about the pain and agony and suffering which he endured, as Christians we do a funny thing and we look back on that pain, suffering, and agony as a symbol of hope. Because if it is true that he is our substitute, it is true that we will never experience what he experienced on the cross because he experienced it for us. If he is truly our substitute, it means that every sin you've ever committed doesn't actually have an outstanding debt attached to it, that it's been fully paid by Jesus upon the cross. That when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't die ambiguously, but he dies with you on his heart and on his mind. That he deals with your sin, your pain, your suffering, and he takes it upon himself so that he might welcome you into the fold of God, welcome you into his family, 
and say, welcome, son, daughter, brother, sister, into the family of God. That the curse doesn't actually hold any kind of weight to us anymore is, is the hope of what we look for here on Good Friday. It is not the end of the story. Sunday is still coming. But ultimately, the curse is the final evacuation of all that was outstanding for sin. That God has accomplished something marvelous, which we now gather to remember. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are forever indebted to you for your sacrifice. For what you accomplished and how you accomplished it, there is no amount of remembrance or thanksgiving or resultant worship that we could ever meet out to thank you enough for all that you have done. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, that you have been pleased to save a people unto yourself. Lord, we thank you that we are numbered among that people. How could we ever repay you but to respond rightly in worship? We thank you and we praise you. Amen.